Well, thank you for clicking on the podcast and checking it out. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we are making our way through the book of Genesis verse by verse. In the last episode, we completed chapter 14 and discussed Abraham's rescue of Lot. We were introduced also to a character named Melchizedek, and we also said a few words regarding the character and actions of the king of Sodom after Abraham's return from battle. Which brings us now to chapter 15. And chapter 15 involves God's covenant with Abraham. There's quite a bit that I want to cover in this chapter, so I'm just going to jump right in with verse 1. And verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And I want to stop right there and say a couple of words about how God begins his communication with Abraham. His first words are what? Fear not, or do not be afraid. And there are a couple of different thoughts as to why God would begin his communication this way. First off, there's the thought that if you encountered God directly, you would certainly be afraid. After all, Adam was, Jacob was, Moses was, and this is the case very often in the Bible when men are approached even by angels. What do they do? They fall to their knees in fear, and even the angels have to say, fear not. In Luke chapter 2, where the angel announces the birth of Christ, it tells us, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what? Filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Another example is when the angel Gabriel is sent to tell Mary that she will give birth to the Savior. And what does he tell her? Luke one thirty tells us, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And after Jesus had been crucified and had been in the tomb for three days and the women went to the tomb, Matthew 28.2 says, And there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, What? Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now, by the way, these guards, they were not little pansies. They were professional Roman soldiers. And if Roman soldiers were accustomed to anything, it was war and death and discipline. And yet, they were so scared that they trembled and were frozen in fear. Rabbi Harold Kushner has pointed out that the most frequent statement of God to man in the Hebrew Bible is, Do not fear. And there are so many examples that I could spend an entire episode on only this topic But I think you get the point. If an angel can have this effect on humans, what do you think the actual and literal presence of God would do to them? Would do to any of us? And I think we're all guilty at times of forgetting about God's perfect holiness and his indescribable power and what that would be like to truly encounter. And I know that we're to go to God in prayer boldly. And pour out our hearts and speak to him and lift up our concerns and our hopes and our hurts and our petitions. But I think sometimes we can forget that we are also to have an awe of God. 
a sort of a, a majestic reverence for who and what he is. And that we can become a bit callous to the awesomeness of God. But I don't think Abraham was to that point yet because the first thing God says to him is, fear not. There's also the thought that God is telling Abraham here to fear not because he's afraid of another attack or revenge from the kings that he had just defeated when rescuing Lot. In the second half of verse 1, God tells Abraham, I am your shield. So if Abraham had any fears of retribution from the other kings, God here is setting his mind at ease and telling him that God is his protector. And as a lesson for us all, the greatest antidote to fear is faith in God. The last thing God tells Abraham in verse 1 is that your reward shall be very great. And if you remember from the last episode, Abraham turned down the spoils of war that were rightfully his to take. And he also declined the offer to take the spoils of war offered to him by the king of Sodom. But here, God is telling Abraham that his reward for faithful service is worth much more than some tainted loot, some tainted booty from a wicked king of Sodom. Verses 2 and 3. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Notice that this is the first time Abraham even speaks to God. I mean, Abraham has followed God. He's left his family, left his home. He has cut ties with his family, becomes a wanderer. He's had his life placed in jeopardy more than once now. And now, this is the first time that he speaks to God. And what does he say? Oh Lord, what can you give me? For I continue childless. It's like Abraham is finally pouring out his heart to God. It's like he's saying, God, what can you give me? I'm already wealthy. I don't need more riches. The yearning in my soul is for a child. And here I am, still childless. And no material possessions or wealth can equal the blessings of a child. Then Abraham goes on to explain that since he's childless and he has no heir, that one of his servants, Eliezer, will be his heir. Now numerous documents in the ancient Near East describe how a servant could become the heir of a childless couple, and typically the servant would perform duties that the son would otherwise perform, such as you know, maintaining the household, caring for the aging parents, and then of course performing certain rites at their funerals. Well, God answers Abraham in verses 4 through 6, which read, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God tells Abraham, no, your servant will not be your heir. Your own son will be your heir. In fact, the Hebrew means that none but your very own issue shall be your heir, or one from your very loins will be your heir. And God takes Abraham outside and tells him to look toward heaven and number the stars if he is able. Well, at that time, Abraham would probably have been able to look up and see around 3,000 stars with the naked eye. But of course, 
he wouldn't have been able to count them. And even if he could count the ones that he could see, Abraham had no idea just how many stars there actually were. I mean, we can't even get our head around the number of stars today, which has been approximated to be 10 to the 23rd power, which is equivalent to all of the grains of sand on all of the beaches and deserts on the entire earth. The point God is making to Abraham is that Abraham will have many, many descendants, so many that he won't even be able to count them. And verse 6, speaking of Abraham, says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. Now again, we could easily spend an entire episode on this one verse. There is a lot packed into this one verse. So God counts Abraham's belief, his trust in God, as righteousness. Abraham places his trust in God. Listen closely to what Paul writes in Galatians 3 verses 8 and 9 where he tells us, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what Paul is saying here is that just as Abraham was justified and considered righteous because of his faith in trusting God, so will those of us who placed our trust and our faith in God, in Jesus Christ. And I want you to pay close attention to this. For Abraham to believe in the promise of God that he would bring forth a son from a dead source, speaking of Sarah's inability to have children, that is the faith equivalent to you and I believing in the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus, our Savior, from the dead. That bears repeating. For Abraham to believe in the promise of God, that he would bring forth a son from the dead, that's the faith equivalent to you and I believing in the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, I normally don't quote this many verses at one time, but I hear I think it's really important because I can't say it or explain it any better than Paul did in Romans chapter 4, 19-25, when explaining how Abraham's faith in God was similar to the faith that we have in Jesus, he writes, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. So why did God count Abraham as righteous? Because he trusted and believed in God. How does God count righteousness to you? How are you going to be saved? How will your sins be forgiven by a holy and righteous God? The same way. Because you trust in him. You believe him. You place your faith in him. It has nothing to do with any of your good works, any of your good deeds, what you did for the community or society. Isaiah 64 tells us that our own self-professed righteousness is like used menstrual cloths to God, filthy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Galatians 2.16 tells us, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Folks, the bottom line here is that Abraham was counted as righteous because he trusted and believed in God. And if we want to be justified, like Abraham, we too have to believe and trust in God, to place our trust in him that Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins and to save us, to reconcile us to a right relationship with God. Because we don't have the ability to do that for ourselves. And the good news is that Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I almost feel like I should just end the episode right there. But no, we'll, we'll finish this chapter. Verses 7 through 11 read, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So Abraham asked God how he will know that he'll possess the land. In other words, he's asking God, look, what's the process going to be here? How will I go about obtaining this land? You know, when do I act? Can you show me a sign that this will happen? And we see more in verse 13 about that. But first, God responds by telling Abraham to gather some animals. And although there's not going to be a sacrifice in this episode, the animals listed are all species that could have been offered as a sacrifice. Abraham then cuts them in half. Well, why did he do that? Who told him to? Not God. But maybe the list of animals suggested to Abraham that God was about to make a covenant with him. The Hebrew actually says to cut a covenant. Abraham was obviously familiar with this procedure, and so he doesn't question anything here. It's important to understand covenants in the ancient Near East. One of the ways people made covenants back then was to cut up animals, just as we see here. It was an important part of the treaty-making process. It was important because the way it worked was that men would pass between the two halves of the animal and confirm or, or ratify the covenant. The meaning was that the one who broke the covenant would suffer the same fate as the animals just did. So the cutting up of the animal was a notice to the potential violator of the covenant of their fate should they break the covenant. And verse 11 tells us that when birds of prey came down to Abraham, that Abraham drove them away. And it's interesting that this detail is even included, but it may just be a metaphor to represent Pharaoh or maybe the Egyptians who will threaten the emergence of the nation of Israel that God has promised. But here, as Bruce Walkie says, Abraham is symbolically defending his promised inheritance from foreign attackers. Verses 12 through 16 read, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now it says that a deep sleep fell on Abraham. It's interesting because this is the same Hebrew word, terdema, used to describe the sleep that fell on Adam when God performed surgery on Adam and created Eve. And it also says that a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. And this is most likely one of two things. Either this great and dreadful darkness is a symbol of Israel's impending enslavement in Egypt, where, incidentally, God also brings about the unique darkness as the ninth of ten plagues in Egypt. Or, this great and dreadful darkness could be associated with Abraham's dread of the awareness of God's divine presence. Then God says to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for 400 years. This is probably not what Abraham was expecting to hear. The land, of course, is Egypt and is a reference to the fact that the Hebrews would be taken captive by Egypt and would be enslaved for 400 years. 400 years! You think about that for a moment. The United States is only 225 years old. This is just a little more than half the amount of time Israel would be enslaved under Egypt. But God also tells Abraham that he will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve and will bring them out of that nation with great possessions. And this is exactly what we see happen with God's ten plagues upon Egypt and then the subsequent exodus from Egypt led by Moses under God's guidance. Now God also tells Abraham that he will go to his fathers in peace. And he's telling him that he will die in peace, but that he will live to a ripe old age. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament only Abraham and Isaac are described as dying in peace and at a ripe old age. But that's truly a blessing because... In reality, there just aren't many people who get to die in peace. I mean, we often hear that phrase after someone dies, you know, may he rest in peace. When we say that, we're sort of making a statement that the person will hopefully now get to catch up on some much-needed and well-deserved rest. Well, I don't want to rest in peace. I want to die in peace. Knowing that I'm in a right relationship with God based on my position in Jesus Christ any other death would be frightful and dreadful. But then God also tells Abraham that his offspring will return to this land after four generations, which of course the Bible is using generations as lifetimes, which were around 100 years at that time. Biblical scholar William Albright explains that the Hebrew word for generations originally meant lifetimes, and that the early Hebrews dated long periods of time by lifetimes or, or a cycle of time, not generations. But then God also makes an interesting statement. God says that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God will bring Israel back to the land he's promised them and will drive the Amorites or, or the Canaanites out of the land, bringing judgment on them for their corruption. But God will not do that just yet, as the level of their corruption and evil has not yet reached a level that they deserved exile from the land. Israel, in other words, must wait on God's timing. 
This is also a demonstration of God's patience and righteousness as he does not bring punishment on the inhabitants of the land prior to them deserving it. It's similar to God bringing judgment on the whole earth with the flood back in Genesis 6. God didn't bring the judgment until the earth was fully corrupt. And we're going to see very shortly that that same principle applies before God destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, finishing up this chapter, verses 17 through 21 read, And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we finish this chapter with God promising Abraham, making a covenant with him, that his offspring will possess the land. God will give them this land that is described. It lays out the boundaries of the land using rivers and lists 10 of the representative people groups who currently live there. Verse 17 says that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, that a, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces of animals. Remember, the way the covenant was ratified was for both parties to pass between the animals and understanding that if one of the parties broke the covenant, that that same thing that happened to the animals would happen to them. In other words, both parties passed through the animals. But what is happening here? What is Abraham doing at this time? He's asleep. Remember, a dark sleep fell upon him so that he didn't pass through the animals. It says that a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed through the animals. Not Abraham. God passes between the pieces of animals alone, without Abraham. God is represented here by the smoke and fire, which are frequent symbols of divine presence, symbols of God's presence. And this also foreshadows the pillar of fire and cloud that will lead the Israelites in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. So God is invoking a curse upon himself if he fails to keep the covenant. And this is a unilateral covenant. As Abraham doesn't take part in it, he's asleep. This is all on God. God's making this covenant by himself, and so it is unconditional on Abraham's part. And so, to close out this chapter, I just want to re-emphasize one thing that we discussed about verse 6, where it tells us that Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. This verse is very important to understand, and it's foundational to the doctrine of what we call justification by faith and not by works. In other words, it's by faith you are saved, not by your works. You see, just like us, Abraham wasn't sinless, but he believed God concerning the birth of a son from the dead, and God counted that to him as righteousness. Abraham is the model for our faith in the resurrection of Jesus, the Son, from the dead, and that if we believe and trust in God, that God will count it to us as righteousness and save us. In John 12:44, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And I leave you this week with a word from Jesus, who said in John 5, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, 
Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life.